we've learned our lessons in the past. I mean, prior to my coming to this planet, <laughs> there were our, our northern forests were dominated by the American chestnut. And then the chestnut blight came in and wiped them all out. And then we had the American elm and Dutch elm disease, which came to the country in early 1930s and wiped out all the elms or is still killing elms. And so, and now we have Emerald Ashbor, and there's and there's others coming down the pike. Welcome to Heartwood, Vermont, a podcast that connects Vermonters to our forested landscape through stories, and answers your questions about our forests, their management, and the forest economy. We're your hosts, Lisa Salisville from Vermont Coverts Woodlands for Wildlife, and Kate Four with UVM Extension. In past episodes, we talked about the importance of diversity to improve forests for wildlife and resiliency in the face of invasive species and climate change. In this episode, we're going to continue that conversation, but with a little bit of a different lens. We'll be exploring urban forests and why species diversity is important when we think about trees in the public, developed spaces where we live. Okay, Kate. What do we really mean when we're talking about urban forestry? In Vermont, it's the trees in our downtowns. It's the trees along our sidewalks. It's the trees on our town greens, or even the trees along our public right-of-way out on our dirt roads. So these conditions that these trees undergo, that they, that they live in, they're different than our forests. When we talk about the forests on the top of Mount Mansfield, for example, or even anywhere in the Green Mountains. You're absolutely right, Lisa. It's the conditions that are really, you know, I think the important part here. And that as those conditions change, right, our considerations for management need to change. So Steve Sinclair, who was our past state forester, had this really great way of articulating kind of the the value of these trees and also kind of how to think about our, our urban forest here in Vermont. And the way that he described it is that our forests really exist here in Vermont on a continuum. So it's not just our urban forest is one area and our rural forest in another, but it's really a continuum from downtown Burlington on Church Street all the way up to the top of Mount Mansfield. Um, and that it's really, it's all one forest. You know, it's the forest in which we live, work and play. Also thinking about connectivity for wildlife. I like it. Absolutely, and trees play a really an essential part in our, our local landscape, as we'll hear from some of our guests, some of the many, many benefits that trees provide. For starters, they're, they're a long-term carbon sink. They're sequestering carbon. They're cooling areas. Stormwater management. Planting trees can really help trap phosphorus um, because that, that phosphorus runs off in sediment and then the, the trees can help sort of trap the sediment on the land before it gets into the water. So having those intact forests right up against waterways is a really important way to improve water quality in the lake and in, in its tributary streams and rivers. You also um, create habitat for birds, for caterpillars, for insects, for, um, for all kinds of animals. That was Vijay Komai, who you also heard from at the beginning of the episode, Warren Spinner, Allison Adams, and Sean White. We'll hear more for them throughout the episode. So Kate, you work for the Urban and Community Forestry Program out of Extension. Can you tell us a little bit more about that program? Yeah, absolutely, Lisa. So our program is actually a partnership between UVM Extension and Vermont Department of Forest Parks and Recreation. We provide technical, educational, and financial assistance to communities to help them, again, in the care and management of their public trees and and public forests. And when I say public forests, I mean things like town forests, which we have um, many communities in the state who actually own forest land. 
we do everything from inventory work to help communities get a sense as to what how you know what their urban forest looks like, um, what their public tree resource looks like, to helping them with managing those rural roadsides that we talked about earlier, um, and thinking about some of these invasive forest pests. Oh, that's cool. So there's a bunch of you that that kind of manage in this program. It looks like you brought someone along today to chat with us. I did. I brought my colleague Ginger Nickerson back. So Ginger is our forest pest educator uh, with the Urban and Community Forestry Program. Welcome, Ginger. Hi, Kate. I'm excited to be back here with you and Lisa today. So, Ginger, you pitched this episode to Kate and I to talk about urban and community forestry. Why is it important that we have a conversation about this topic? So I help municipalities and community groups prepare for invasive pests and diseases that might affect their public trees. And I wanted to share a story unfolding across Vermont today. So as many people know, many years ago, a lot of towns in Vermont and across the nation lost their elm trees in their downtowns and urban areas to Dutch elm disease. And these towns then replanted with ash trees in their public spaces. But now municipalities around Vermont are faced with losing their ash trees to emerald ash borer. And so as we move forward, it's really important that we start thinking about having a diversity of tree species in our public spaces. So when I think about forest diversity, I think of different types of trees, so different species, but I also think of woody debris on the ground, standing dead trees, different age classes and sizes. So having a lot of these types of diversity support healthy forests and provide habitat for wildlife in general. But it sounds like we're not going to have a lot of that in our public parks because people want to have a picnic or whatever. So what does that actually mean for diversity in those areas? So Lisa, it's true. We are thinking about different things, but we are also thinking about things like you mentioned, thinking about age class. We're thinking about species diversity, uh, and we are thinking about structural diversity. For the purposes of this episode, when we're talking about diversity, we're really specifically talking about species diversity. All right, so when we think about what Ginger has said and what you have said, and, and I think back to pictures I've seen of these Elm Streets. Uh, that they're named Elm Street because they had all the elms that were growing down, and they liked it because it was uniform, and it gave streets that uniform look. But unfortunately, that uniform look came at a cost. One of the people who I spoke with was Warren Spinner, the retired city arborist for Burlington. I'll let Warren share what happens when one species is overplanted. American elms uh, are beautiful. Their structure is perfect for the urban environment and they grew like a vase, so they were up and out of the way. You could put your structure underneath them and that's one of the reasons they got overplanted. Many cities in the U.S. on the East Coast and Midwest were lined with American elms, and they were typically planted back in the, starting around probably 1900, 1910, and they planted them right up through, even into the 40s and 50s. And then uh, a disease was introduced from Europe called Dutch elm disease, which most folks are familiar with. And that was the start of the decline of all the elms throughout 
the the region northeast and especially Burlington. Uh, it was told to me when I started that Burlington had 10,000 elms at one point. When I got there of streets that had no trees and um, I can think of a number of streets that I would you know drive down and there'd be nothing but elm stumps because they hadn't quite caught up with the stump removal. Life is really hard for urban trees and unfortunately there's only a few options of trees that can do well in urban settings. So for cities and towns that lost those public elm trees, you know, they really had a limited choice of trees to replant. Our urban and community forestry program manager, Elise Shadler with the Department of Forest and Parks explains it really well. The urban environment is so tough on trees that you also have to really think about one diversity, but also like just what's gonna survive. And a lot of those soils were um, just like backfill and rubble and not like ideal growing conditions. So there, there were limited number of trees and are, it's, it's this big challenge in urban forestry is just finding trees that are tough enough to be able to deal with that environment. Um, and maybe you're, you're overrepresenting those trees because you try other things and they just don't work time after time. You're just gonna kind of fall back on those really tough urban trees. This was certainly the case for Burlington. So here's Warren again talking about replanting the city after the loss of their elm trees and how getting a diverse number of species that could thrive in the city was a challenge. So a new mayor was, was elected by the, the voters at the time who was Bernie Sanders. So when he was driving around the city, he definitely noticed the streets vacant of trees and wanted to do something about it. So the initial start of the reforesting of Burlington happened around the early 80s. And uh, the very first major tree planting we did in 1983 was in the spring spring, we planted 600 trees with volunteers. And my role was getting the trees. So you can imagine a young arborist uh, with a feat of trying to locate, find, and get 600 trees that were of the size that volunteers could easily move them around. That was one of my issues then, is that the diversity of the trees, I didn't have a whole lot of choice because of the numbers we were getting. So they ended up planting a lot of ash. Green ash and white ash got overplanted. It's because they worked in the urban environment. And you, you could put them in the ground, you could, you could misplant them. You could plant them too deep and they'd still live. You could do all kinds of bad things to them and they would survive. You know, so developers, architects, everybody, arborists, we were all using that tree. So listeners, you may remember from our last episode that ash trees are threatened by emerald ash borer or EAB. If you need a quick refresher on this issue, check out our last episode. It seems like planting just a few species of public trees is like that old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you plant a monoculture or just one species, a pest or disease comes along, you have a chance of losing them all. 
Exactly, Lisa. Vijay Kamai is the current city arborist for Burlington, and he and Warren talk about how Emerald Ashbor drove home the lesson for them that the best way to prevent losing all of your street trees to a one tree-specific pest is to plant a diversity of trees. When I came on as city arborist, within weeks, the first detection of emerald ash borer in the state. So it was, it was a lot all at once. I was very aware of the imminent threat of emerald ash borer. I knew it was coming. I hoped I'd have more time. <laughs> so I was just getting my feet under me here in the city and getting familiar with our inventory software system, our systems in general, my crew, running my crew, what, what they did on a daily basis. And so it was a lot. So, you know, immediately I took full advantage of our inventory software system called TreeWorks to identify the location of every ash within our in our care throughout the city. And that was a great tool because I could really key in on the areas with ash. And then I got in a truck and rode around and visited all of them and started to think about what would be our approach moving forward, knowing, knowing that it was only a matter of time. Just about 10% of our inventory trees at the time I came on were ash, either green or white ash. So instead of a challenge, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to start diversifying our canopy more. The list of tree species that can tolerate urban conditions and don't get very large can be planted under overhead utilities is fairly limited and we'll see what works. But with a warming climate too, who knows? And if <laughs> down the road, we may be planting some species that you normally wouldn't think of planting this far north and trying them on a limited basis. Since I've been here, we've been planting some tulip trees, uh, sweet gum, um, shingle oak, which there was none of in the city prior to my coming here. We just started in the last couple years planting Cornelian cherry dogwood. You know, we're doing flowering crab apples and Japanese tree lilacs, some hawthorns. So some of the trees VJ mentions are not native. Normally, we're encouraging landowners and others to target and select native species. Why would towns or cities be choosing something other than natives? I'm glad you brought this point up, Lisa. It's really complicated. Normally, I would agree with you that natives are the best option. But when we're talking about urban conditions, finding a native species that can thrive in these conditions is really hard. And so it's really about selecting a species that will fit the site and the growing conditions. Sometimes native species work and sometimes they don't. If we think about urban forests as part of that forest continuum that I mentioned earlier, there's definitely a lot of advantages to planting native species if they can work in the space. You know, you have to think about things like salt spray from our roads, compacted soils, or, you know, the various characteristics of a tree that we as humans are willing to put up with. I use the example a lot of acorns and cars. There's a reason we don't plant oak trees, you know, along our roads. People don't want acorns raining down on their cars. I, I never really thought about that. Or on them, hitting them in the head. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. I must go tell the... Chicken little, chicken little! Chicken... <laughs> So the best ecological choice is a native, obviously, but that's not always the choice that works best for people and, and the trees that we like to plant. 
Yeah, I guess I would always argue for native species because there's a lot of advantages to planting them. The insects and birds in the area use native trees uh, as pollen and food sources because they co-evolve together. But if you plant a non-native tree or even a cultivar, it may not provide those benefits. So, uh, you know, I understand the, the, the dug of war, I guess, that's going on, but I'm still plugging for natives. You're not alone, Lisa. So two of the people I spoke with, Allison Adams, the coordinator for the Vermont Watershed Forestry Partnership, and Sean White, project manager for Friends of the Winooski, are both thinking about that kind of biodiversity and the ecological resilience it provides for their work planting trees in riparian areas. Those are the species that are adapted to this landscape. They're less likely to present... Um, invasive species problems. You know, we, we want to be encouraging the ecosystems that are specific to this area, the ones that are going to support the wildlife that's native to this area, the ones that are going to be um, culturally significant to this area. Those are the species that we really want to be planting in restoration projects. Locally sourced trees is additionally important, not necessarily more important, but additionally important because um, trees that are grown locally can help support the local economy and the, the local workforce. Trees that are grown locally are likely more genetically adapted to the local conditions. And the, the trouble with ornamentals, um, you know, they look beautiful. They, they often don't have very many pests. They don't, you know, they don't get uh, eaten. There's no, you know, the leaves don't get holes in them and that sort of thing. But if you're really looking at restoring your yard for the uh, purpose of biodiversity, you want plants that get eaten. <laughs> you want to support the native insects because those insects then feed birds and, and other organisms, you know, uh, frogs and toads. And if you, if, if you view your yard a little bit differently and think about it as being really part of an ecosystem, as opposed to being something that you just sort of look at as, you know, um, just something aesthetic. If you are just worried about water quality, and and run off, then yes, I mean, an ornamental plant, an ornamental tree is still going to serve that purpose. It's going to absorb water. It's going to, you know, uh, intercept rainfall. You know, the, the reason that native plants work much better at supporting an ecosystem has to do with the food chain. The next step up on the food chain from the plant itself are insects. And most insects are specialists. They will only eat a couple of species you know, we hear a lot about how monarch populations are crashing. It's not just the monarch. There's there are other insects too that are really suffering. Um, we're 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 in a situation where a lot of them are their their populations are crashing. If the insects, you know, populations go down, then we can expect that uh, the bird populations will be further decimated. They are already much less than they used to be. Almost all bird species feed their babies caterpillars or insects. And so if we want to grow birds, we have to grow insects. Friends of the Winooski has a project called Lawns to Forests that helps people plant trees in their yards to protect waterways. The fact that people had um, so much lawn would contribute so much to excess runoff pollutants, you know, because they would carry fertilizers and pesticides. And so anything that's running off of these big lawns that often people have, um, those are having a big impact on, on rivers and streams. We really felt like one way that we could be very effective in keeping rivers and streams clean and healthy and, and to, to restore that ecosystem is to help 
community members restore their own yards, reduce the lawn that they have, plant um, hopefully woody native vegetation, so trees and shrubs that could repair all of those things that are wrong with, with just lawn. And to restore the ecosystem, too, because in addition to all of those water quality benefits and storm water volume reduction, you also um, create habitat for birds, for caterpillars, for insects, for, um, for all kinds of animals. You're really uh, restoring sort of the, the, native, the, the natural biodiversity that was eliminated when this monoculture of lawn was created. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that watershed restoration groups are thinking about supporting insect populations by planting native trees. Restoring riparian areas is also important for providing corridors for wildlife to travel along. Wildlife like it messy. You know, they don't want it all cleaned up. You can save money by mowing less or not mowing at all or selecting areas that you don't mow in. And and you're going to do good things for wildlife. Through Vermont Coverts, we work to educate landowners and others about the importance of habitat connectivity and working to improve habitat for wildlife. And this can be done on a very small plot of land in town to someone who has 100 acres or more. This all brings us back to the idea that it's really one continuum of forest and that trees planted in our developed areas are actually connected to this larger landscape and provide that connectivity that you're talking about for wildlife, which includes insects. Right, and the folks that I interviewed talked a lot about that tension between people wanting to plant native trees to benefit wildlife and the fact that not every native species is going to be able to thrive under the stresses in developed areas. How come you can't use native species? Or, you know, how come you're using European species and, and not native species? It's about handling the adverse conditions that you're planting the tree in. I think some people feel really strongly about native trees. I think, and that's that's really great. I would also stress that what I said earlier truly truly is something that needs to be considered. Is just that an urban tree has a harder life than um, non-urban. So when we think about like, okay, here are all the species that might do well in this site because of you know the underground growing conditions like the soil type and the drainage and here's all the species that you know, that that list would be narrowed down by is there any overhead infrastructure are there um sidewalks that they're going to have to worry about is there salt load that's going to go on that site that might impact the root systems so you have the you start with a big list of trees and then you start narrowing it down and um, the order in which you narrow down that list might change and you know, perhaps your first narrowing factor is native versus non-native. And then, so then you go through the rest of those decisions with a smaller list and you get to whatever ends up being the right tree for that space. We support all of it as long as they're planting the right tree in the right place in the right way. So it's really complicated. On top of this tension between native and non-native species, there's climate change to worry about. Many of the factors that we've talked about are changing and the stressors that urban trees are facing are less predictable, such as invasive pests, droughts, and storms. All of the people who I spoke to 
mentioned that making sure that we have a diversity of trees in our backyards and town parks and other developed areas is important in terms of giving us more resilience in the face of climate change. You know, we think about climate change, quite honestly. What's what's going to hold up? We're, we're always looking for new species to try on a limited basis and see how they fare. It's It's a tough world out there for an urban tree. You know, Burlington's built on a hill, essentially, much of it. It's got a very antiquated stormwater, combined stormwater sewer system in many parts of the city. So we get these epic downpours. We, we tend to have more uh, intense storms, I think, with climate change, where we get heavy, heavy rains. The more canopy you have, the slower the impacts of those downpours, you know, the, the trees catching a lot of water. And some of it is never hitting the ground. It's staying on the leaves and evaporating or being absorbed by the roots of the tree. So that's that's really significant. I think, you know, a lot of urban planners and urban foresters really took the lessons from elm and now ash into into consideration as they're thinking about the future urban forest. And there's that change piece that I spoke about, but there also is just the realization that when you've got a large population of one or two species, we don't know what's coming down the pike um, as far as pests and there's going to be something. There's And so if you have um, these monocultures or just non-diverse um, street tree populations, if you've got a ton of maple, which a lot of towns in Vermont do, like they're, when we get something that really threatens those trees, then that's, you're facing a big loss there. We are in a period of unprecedented change, and we also don't really understand how that change is going to roll out. So I think the the wisdom is just realizing that the more diverse a population of trees you have, the more likely you're going to have some resilience to that change. So we've talked about why it's important to plant trees in these areas, but who is actually doing this work? Yeah, so at least Shadler talked a lot about that. By and large, a lot of the tree planting and stewardship efforts that are happening in municipalities are happening from volunteers. So these might just be um, an ad hoc group that focuses on tree stewardship and other environmental issues in a town, or they might be the Conservation Commission members, or they might be a tree board, um, or they might be a town forest committee, something like that. There's also Vermont tree wardens as well. And these are folks who are actually appointed in each community to be responsible for the stewardship and care of our public trees. So because trees are so good at slowing down water and filtering runoff, we're seeing a lot of watershed organizations in Vermont doing tree plantings on both public and private lands. Allison Adams and Sean White represent just two of the watershed organizations that are planting trees in riparian areas in Vermont. And at the Urban and Community Forestry Program, we're seeing more interest from municipalities in planting trees to protect their waterways. And this brings us back to this um, image of the forest that we live in as a continuum. It's really just one canopy. And there are lots of groups with different interests planting trees in our cities, towns, and villages. Okay. So I'm hearing that having a diversity of species is important. 
not just in what we typically think of as our forests, but in other areas where trees are planted, like on our city streets. And if we plant a diversity of species, we should have some protection or resilience so that when the next insect or disease comes along, we won't wipe out all the trees like we did with Dutch elm disease and emerald ash borer. That's right, Lisa. And where we can, we should be thinking about planting native trees because of all those benefits that we've talked about. So here are a few things that our listeners can do. Start by getting to know the trees a little bit. Um, You know, if you don't have a tree ID book, get one. There's some really great ones out there. Um, Learn to identify the trees in your yard, in your neighborhood. Start to have an idea of what is planted in the right-of-way or planted on public land, if anything. You can go pick up acorns off the ground and plant them. I mean, that's 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 an easy way to do to do things, and um, it's you know it's not hard at all. Um, you, you know, find a find a native tree that you like. You know, find some seeds on the ground when they when they shed their seeds, plant them in your yard. And I think if you have the opportunity to plant trees on your property, plant trees. We're planting for the next generation, and it's important. Well, boy, these are some great ideas. And remember, another idea was to mow less often or carve out areas where you're not going to mow and leave it messy for wildlife. Um, Kate, what are some of your go-to resources? Oh my gosh, Lisa, there are so many awesome resources out there. There's just way too many to share with listeners right now, especially since we know that most of you are listening to this in your car or maybe you're cooking dinner. We've actually generated a list in our show notes for listeners to check out when they have a minute. So we talked about what people maybe can do in their own properties, but I want to focus back to the urban trees. The whole idea for this episode, Ginger, tell us what people can do to help the urban trees in their communities. So as we heard from both Elise and Kate, most of these efforts are volunteer driven and most communities would welcome folks getting involved in taking care of their public trees. So listeners can join a tree board if their town has one, join a conservation commission or volunteer with a local watershed group. There's lots of different ways that you can get involved in promoting diversity in your community's trees. We'll have links to some of these organizations in the show notes. Thank you to all our guests, Vijay Komai, Warren Spinner, Elise Shadler, Allison Adams, and Sean White. And a really huge thank you to our special guest, Ginger Nickerson from UVM Extension. Thanks for having me, Lisa and Kate. Ginger, can we count on you coming back? Absolutely. This has been Kate for Lisa Sawsville. And Ginger Nickerson. And you've been listening to Heartwood Vermont, hosted by Vermont Coverts, UVM Extension, and UVM Center for Research on Vermont. This episode was produced by Leah Kelleher and made possible by funding from the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Food and Markets, and the USDA APHIS. The interviews we heard were conducted in collaboration by the podcast team and Ginger Nickerson. Thanks for listening.